The following programme contains adult themes. Now on documentary and drama on News Talk. On the 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's masterpiece, Ulysses. A two-part radio drama that tells the story of Bloomsday, June 16th, 1904. Strolling through Ulysses. Today, I'm going to take all of you on a leisurely stroll through the story of Ulysses, while, at the same time, revealing to you some of Joyce's exquisite writing as we ramble through the pages. You know, it took Joyce seven years to write Ulysses. Seven years! But all of the action in the book takes place on just one single day, June 16th, 1904. And why that date? Because it was the day that he first walked out with Nora Barnacle, the girl who was eventually to become his wife. So I want you to sit back comfortably and take a deep breath as I now transport you back to Dublin on a fine summer's morning. It's around eight o'clock and it's a Thursday. It's June 16th. 1904. Stately, plump Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead, bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. A yellow dressing gown, ungirdled, was sustained gently behind him by the mild morning air. The very first words of the first episode of Ulysses which takes place at a Martello Tower in Sandy Cove in Dublin. The two men who are staying in the tower are standing at the parapet in conversation. One of them is Buck Mulligan, a medical student and a bawdy and sometimes irreverent joker. The other is a broody, aloof young man by the name of Stephen Dedalus. Now, Stephen Dedalus is one of the main characters in the book and also, in fact, a depiction of James Joyce himself when he was aged around 22. Now Stephen is irritated by Mulligan and their conversation is, to put it mildly, a little tense. And at one point Mulligan nags Stephen over the death of Stephen's mother who had passed away about a year ago. On her deathbed she had asked Stephen to kneel down and pray with her but because of his attitude towards the Catholic Church, he had stubbornly refused. Can you imagine? The last wish of his dying mother? Well, of course, he's been troubled with guilt over this ever since. And Mulligan continues to aggravate Stephen by poking at him. You could have knelt down, damn it, when your dying mother asked you. Think of your mother begging you with her last breath to kneel down and pray for her, and you refused. Do you remember the first time I went to your house after my mother's death? What? I can't remember anything. I remember only ideas and sensations. You were making tea, and I went across the landing to get more hot water. Your mother and some visitor came out of the drawing room. She asked you who was in your room. What did I say? I forget. You said, oh, it's only Daedalus, whose mother is beastly dead. Did I say that? Well, what harm is that? I didn't mean to offend the memory of your mother. I am not thinking of the offence to my mother. Of what, then? Of the offence to me. 
Oh, an impossible person. The friction continues between them, but they both have some breakfast and then they leave the tower together. Mulligan goes for his morning swim to the little cove beside the tower and he declares to Stephen. Isn't the sea what algae calls it? A great sweet mother. The snot green sea. The scrotum tightening sea. Stephen decides that he's had enough of the tower and of Mulligan. He leaves the key of the tower with Mulligan who specifically asks for it. It's a short while later and we now find ourselves in a boys' school in nearby Dawkey, where Stephen is teaching Roman history and English literature. They've a half day today so classes finish early and Stephen calls to the office of Mr Deasy the headmaster to collect his wages for the month. Three pounds twelve shillings. Now Mr Deasy's just finished writing a letter to the newspapers and he asks Stephen for a bit of help. You can do me a favour, Mr Dedalus, with some of your literary friends. I have a letter here for the press. Sit down a moment. I just have to copy the end. I want it to be printed and read. If you could have them published at once. I will try and let you know tomorrow. I know two editors, likely. That will do. Stephen went out by the open porch and down the gravel path under the trees. Still, I will help him in his fight. Mulligan will dub me a new name, the Bullock Befriending Bard. Stephen leaves the school and walks along Sandy Mount Strand as he makes his way into the city centre. Stephen closed his eyes to hear his boots crush crackling rack and shells. His feet marched in sudden proud rhythm over the sand furrows along by the boulders of the south wall. And as he marches along, he makes it very clear that his mind hasn't changed on one particular thing. The cold domed room of the tower awaits. I will not sleep there when this night comes. Well, now, I don't think he could make it any clearer than that. And as Stephen deliberates over his domestic difficulties, he feels a pressing urge to perform a particular bodily function. He picks his nose. And as he rummages in his trouser pockets, he soon realises... My handkerchief. Did I not take it up? No, I didn't. Better buy one. He laid the dry snot picked from his nostril on a ledge of rock carefully. So let's leave Stephen there on Sandy Mount Strand with his carefully deposited dry snot. The time has come for you to meet the main character of the book the very embodiment of the mythical hero Ulysses. And in order to meet this individual, Joyce brings us back in time to 8am again and to a kitchen in the heart of Dublin. Mr Leopold Bloom ate with relish the inner organs of beasts and fowls. He liked thick giblet soup, nutty gizzards, a stuffed roast heart, liver slices fried with crust crumbs, fried hencods rose, most of all, he liked grilled mutton kidneys, which gave to his palate a fine tang of faintly scented urine. Mr. Bloom, that's where we get Bloomsday from, by the way. Mr. Bloom is a 38-year-old newspaper advertisement salesman, middle class, of Jewish background, but, well, now more of an atheist than anything else. Born in Dublin, but the son of a Hungarian immigrant. 
and he lives with his wife Molly at number 7 Echo Street and we meet him as he's preparing her breakfast in bed. Kidneys were in his mind as he moved about the kitchen softly, writing her breakfast things on the humpy tray. Molly, by the way, is a well-known opera singer. And as Mr Bloom potters around in the kitchen, she is lying upstairs, half asleep. Mr Bloom contemplates what he'll have for breakfast. Ham and eggs? No. No good eggs with this drought. Want pure fresh water. Thursday. Not a good day either for a mutton kidney at Buckley's. Better a pork kidney at Blugax. On quietly creaky boots, he went up to the staircase in the hall, paused by the bedroom door. I'm going around the corner. Back in a minute. You don't want anything for breakfast. A sleepy, soft grunt answered. <clears throat> no, she didn't want anything. He hears then a warm, heavy sigh, softer as she turned over and the loose brass quoits of the bedstead jingled. While the kettle is boiling, he pops around the corner to Glugax Butchers on Dorset Street to buy a pork kidney for himself. He halted before Glugax's window, staring at the hanks of sausages, bolognese, black and white. The shiny links packed with forcemeat fed his gaze and he breathed in tranquilly the lukewarm breath of cooked spicy pig's blood. A kidney oozed blood gouts on the willow-patterned dish. He stood by the next-door girl at the counter. His eyes rested on her vigorous hips. Strong pair of arms. Whacking a carpet on the clothesline. She does whack it by George. The way her crooked skirt swings at each whack. Thank you, my miss. And one shilling and three pence change. For you, please. Mr. Bloom points quickly to the kidney. To catch up and walk behind her if she went slowly. Behind her moving hams. Pleasant to see first thing in the morning. Hurry up, damn it. Make hay while the sun shines. His hand accepted the moist, tender gland and slid it into a side pocket. Then it fetched up three coins from his trousers pocket and laid them on the rubber prickles. They lay, were read quickly and quickly slid disc by disc into the till. Outside, the next door girl is nowhere to be seen. No sign. Gone. What matter? When he arrives home, the early morning post is on the floor in the hall. Among the envelopes, there's a letter and a postcard from their 15-year-old daughter, Millie, who's working as a photographer's assistant in the town of Mullingar. Her birthday was yesterday, June 15th, and she's writing to thank her parents for the birthday presents they'd sent down to her. But also among the envelopes, there's another letter. A letter addressed to Mrs. Marion Bloom. His quick heart slowed at once. Old hand, Mrs. Marion. Mr. Bloom recognises the handwriting. Now this letter is from Blazes Boylan, the brash, straw-hatted impresario and well, general man about town. Boylan is organising a concert tour to Belfast in which Molly will be singing. Not only that, but he's also having a lusty affair with the buxom Molly 
and right under Mr Bloom's nose. Now Mr Bloom is well aware of it, but well, he doesn't quite know what to do about it. You see, Mr Bloom himself hasn't made love to Molly for almost 11 years now. Not since their baby son Rudy died at just 11 days old. Now apparently they have snippets of some kind of sexual activity together, but no actual intercourse. But let's get back to Echo Street and to Mr Bloom as he goes upstairs to Molly with the post. Entering the bedroom, he half closed his eyes and walked through the warm yellow twilight towards her tousled head. He laid her card and letter on the twill bedspread near the curve of her knees. Do you want the blind up? Letting the blind up by gentle tugs halfway, his backward eye saw her glance at the letter and tuck it under her pillow. That do? She was reading the card, propped on her elbow. She got the things. He waited till she had laid the card aside and curled herself back slowly with a snug sigh. Hurry up with that tea. I'm parched. The kettle is boiling. He delayed to clear the chair, her striped petticoat, tossed soiled linen, and lift it all in an armful onto the foot of the bed. As he went down the kitchen stairs, she called... Holdy! What? Scald the teapot. He scalded and rinsed out the teapot and put in four full spoons of tea, tilting the kettle then to let water flow in. Having set it to draw, he took off the kettle and crushed the pan flat on the live coals and watched the lump of butter slide and melt. While he unwrapped the kidney, the cat mewed hungrily against him. Mm, give her too much meat and she won't mouse. He prodded a fork into the kidney and slapped it over, then fitted the teapot on the tray. Its hump bumped as he took it up. Everything on it. Bread and butter. Four. Sugar. Spoon. Her cream. Yes. He carried it upstairs, his thumb hooked in the teapot handle. Nudging the door open with his knee, he carried the tray in and set it on the chair by the bedhead. A strip of torn envelope peeped from under the dimpled pillow. Who was the letter from? Oh, Boylan. He's bringing the programme. Molly tells him that he'll be calling in to see her at four in the afternoon to discuss and rehearse the Belfast concert programme. Poor Mr Bloom is only too well aware that they'll be doing a lot more than just discussing and rehearsing the concert programme. What'll you be singing? La Chidarem with J.C. Doyle and Love's Old Sweet Song. He smiled, glancing askance at her mocking eye. The same young eyes. The first night after the charades. Dolphin's barn. The sun shines for you, he said. The day we were lying among the rhododendrons on Hoth Head. The day I got him to propose to me. And as Mr Bloom is tidying up around the room, they chat about Ruby, the Pride of the Ring, the latest novel that Molly's been reading. Did you finish it? Yes. There's nothing smutty in it. 
Is she in love with the first fellow all the time? Never read it. Do you want another? Yes. Get another of Paul de Cox. Nice name he has. There's a smell of burn. Did you leave anything on the fire? The kidney! He fitted the book roughly into his inner pocket and, stubbing his toes against the broken commode, hurried out towards the smell, stepping hastily down the stairs with a flurried stork's legs. Pungent smoke shot up in an angry jet from the side of the pan. By prodding the prong of the fork under the kidney, he detached it and turned it turtle on its back. Only a little burned. He tossed it off the pan onto a plate and let the scanty brown gravy trickle over it. He sat down, cut and buttered a slice of loaf. He shore away the burnt flesh and flung it to the cat. He then put a forkful into his mouth, chewing with discernment the toothsome pliant meat. Mm. Done to a turn. He creased out Millie's letter at his side. Dearest Papley, Thanks ever so much for the lovely birthday present. It suits me splendid. Everyone says I'm quite the belle in my new tan. I got Mummy's lovely box of creams and I'm writing. I'm getting on swimming in the photo business now. He read it slowly as he chewed, sopping another dye of bread in the gravy and raising it to his mouth. Give my love to Mummy and to yourself a big kiss and thanks. I hear them at the piano downstairs. There is to be a concert in the Greville Arms on Saturday. Must close now with fondest love. Excuse bad writing, I'm in a hurry. Your fond daughter, Millie. Fifteen yesterday. Curious. Fifteenth of the month, too. Her first birthday away from home. Remember the summer morning she was born, running to knock up Mrs Thornton in Denzel Street. Jolly old woman. Not a baby she must have helped into the world. She knew from the first poor little Rudy wouldn't live. Well, God is good, sir. She knew at once. He would be eleven now if he had lived. A soft qualm, regret, flowed down his backbone, increasing. Better where she is down there. He felt heavy, full. Then a gentle loosening of his bowels. He stood up undoing the waistband of his trousers. He heads out to the toilet and he brings an old copy of Titbits magazine with him to read. He kicked open the crazy door of the Jake's. He went in, bowing his head under the low lintel, leaving the door ajar amid the stench of mouldy limewash and stale cobwebs. He undid his braces. No great hurry. Keep it a bit. Quietly he read, restraining himself, the first column, and, yielding but resisting, began the second. Midway, his last resistance yielding, he allowed his bowels to ease themselves quietly as he read, reading still patiently. He read on, seated calm above his own rising smell, feeling his water flow quietly. That slight constipation of yesterday quite gone. Hope it's not too big to bring on piles again. No. Just right. Well, I think we're all delighted to hear that. Mr Bloom becomes immersed in the prize story he's reading in Titbits magazine and when he's finished part of it, 
He tore away half the prize story sharply and wiped himself with it. Then he girded up his trousers, braced and buttoned himself. He pulled back the jerky, shaky door and came forth from the gloom into the air. Hi-ho, 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 hi-ho. And Stephen Dedalus on the other side of the city must also have heard church bells somewhere ring out a quarter to nine. And so this long day's wandering journey, which will bring us all over the city, and which will eventually bring Leopold Bloom and Stephen Dedalus together, has, at last, begun. By lorries along Sir John Rogerson's quay, Mr Bloom walked soberly past Windmill Lane, Leesk's the Linseed Crushers, the Postal Telegraph Office and past the Sailor's Home. We now accompany Mr Bloom as he makes his way to Paddy Dignam's funeral. He's got a couple of things he wants to do beforehand and his first port of call is Westland Row Post Office. You see, Molly may be having an affair with Blaze's Boylan, but Mr Bloom is also cheating on his wife. Well, in a way. He's actually engaged in a sort of pen pal affair with a woman by the name of Martha Clifford. They're both, of course, using post office box numbers and this morning Mr Bloom is hoping that there'll be a letter from Martha waiting for him at the post office. No answer, probably. Went too far last time. This little affair, for want of a better word, started when Martha answered an advertisement which Mr Bloom had placed in the Irish Times looking for a... Smart lady typist to aid gentlemen in literary work. And lo and behold, there is a letter there for him and he collects it. He leaves the post office and looks around for a suitable discreet place to open it. He gazes across at an outsider carriage on Westland Row in front of the Grosvenor Hotel and he sees a beautiful woman standing beside it with another man getting ready to board the carriage. Husband, brother, like her. Getting up in a minute. Watch. Silk flash, rich stockings white. Watch. A heavy tramcar honking its gong slewed between. Lost it. Curse your noisy pug nose. Always happening like that. The very moment. The tram passed. They drove off towards the loopline bridge, her rich gloved hand on the steel grip, the lace flare of her hat in the sun. Frustrated at being denied a glimpse of silk stockings, and perhaps a little more, Mr Bloom eventually finds a quiet spot on Cumberland Street and reads Martha's letter. Dear Henry. Oh yes, I meant to tell you, he's using a false name. Henry Flower, would you believe? Well, it ties in nicely with his real name. Dear Henry. I got your last letter to me and thank you very much for it. Please tell me what you think of poor me. Are you not happy in your home, you poor little naughty boy? I often think of the beautiful name you have. Dear Henry. 
When will we meet? I have never felt myself so much drawn to a man as you. Oh, how I long to meet you. Henry, dear, do not deny my request before my patience are exhausted and write by return to your longing. Martha. P.S. Do tell me what kind of perfume does your wife use? I want to know. Mr. Bloom puts the letter safely into his pocket and, as he's strolling along, his thoughts begin to wander and he starts to think of his poor dead father, who, on the 27th of June, 1886, that's almost 18 years ago now, committed suicide by taking an overdose of aconite in the Queen's Hotel in Ennis, County Clare. Poor Papa. Poor man. I'm glad I didn't go into the room to look at his face that day. Well, perhaps it was best for him. No use thinking of it anymore. To pass some time, Mr. Bloom decides to pay a visit to All Hallows Church on Westland Row. Although his ancestral religion is Judaism, he had also been baptised into the Protestant Church and, later on, in order to marry Molly, into the Catholic Church. But, as I said earlier, he's now more of an atheist than anything else. He had reached the open back door of All Hallows. He trod the worn steps, pushed the swing door and entered softly by the rear. Women knelt in the benches with crimson halters round their necks, heads bowed. A batch knelt at the altar rails, the priest went along by them, murmuring, holding the thing in his hands. He stopped at each, took out a communion, shook a drop or two. Are they in water? And put it neatly into her mouth. Latin. Shut your eyes and open your mouth. What? Corpus. Body. Corpse. Good idea, the Latin. Stupefies them first. Rome idea, eating bits of a corpse. Mr. Bloom looked back towards the choir. Hmm, not going to be any music. Pity. He sat back quietly on his bench. The priest came down from the altar and began to read off a card. Mr. Bloom put his face forward to catch the words. English. Throw them the bone. I remember slightly. More interesting if you understood what it was all about. Confession. Everyone wants to. Penance. Punish me, please. Raise weapon in their hands. Whispering gallery. Walls of ears. And don't they rake in the money too? He passed down the aisle and out through the main door into the light. He stood a moment, unseeing by the cold black marble bowl, while before him and behind, two worshippers dipped furtive hands into the low tide of holy water. Mr. Bloom strolls along Westland Row. On Lincoln Place, he goes into Sweeney's Chemist to get a special lotion for Molly, and he suddenly realises... But the recipe is in the other trousers. And I forgot the latchkey too. Oh, you can look it up in the prescriptions book. 
The lotion has to be made up and Mr Bloom agrees to call back for it later. He buys a bar of Barrington's lemon soap and he leaves the shop. Outside, he bumps into an acquaintance of his, Bantam Lyons. Now Lyons sees that Mr Bloom has a copy of the Freeman's Journal newspaper and as the Ascot Gold Cup, a very important horse race, is on in the afternoon. Hello Bloom, what's the best news? Is that today's? Show us a minute. I want to see about that French horse that's running today. Bantam Lines' yellow-black-nailed fingers unrolled the baton. Where the bugger is it? Better leave him the paper and get shut of him. You can keep it. Ascot, gold cup, wait, half a mo, maximum the second. I was just going to throw it away. What's that? I say you can keep it. I was going to throw it away that moment. There is actually a horse running in the Ascot Gold Cup by the name of Throwaway, a complete outsider. But for some reason, Bantam Lines appears to be willing to, if you pardon my pun, run with it. I'll risk it. Here, thanks. Mr Bloom folded the sheets again to a neat square and lodged the soap in it, smiling. He now heads for the nearby Leinster Street Turkish and Warm Baths. He's aroused by Martha's letter and the prospects of what it might lead to, and he's thinking to himself. Hammer. Turkish. Massage. Dirt gets rolled up in your navel. Nicer if a nice girl did it. Also, I think I... Yes, I... Do it in the bath. Curious longing, I. Water to water. Combine business with pleasure. The novel doesn't accompany him into the bathhouse, so we catch up with him again after his bath. Mr Bloom eventually arrives at the late Paddy Dignam's home in Sandymount, and he climbs into one of the funeral carriages for the journey from Sandymount to Glasnevin Cemetery. And among the mourners in his particular carriage is one Mr. Simon Dedalus, Stephen's father. And as the funeral cortege is making its way through the streets of Dublin, Mr. Bloom recognises Stephen Dedalus walking along the footpath. He knows him to see. Mr. Bloom points Stephen out to Simon. There's a friend of yours gone by, Dedalus. Who's that? Your son and heir. Was that Mulligan Cad with him? No. He was alone. He's in with that low-down crowd. That mulligan is a contaminated, bloody, double-eyed ruffian by all accounts. His name stinks all over Dublin. But with the help of God and the Blessed Mother, I'll make it my business to write a letter one of these days to his mother or his aunt or whatever she is that will open her eye as wide as a gate. And as Simon Dedalus continues to rant on about the company his son Stephen is keeping, Mr Bloom starts to think about his own dead son, Rudy and what he might be like today if he had lived. See him grow up, hear his voice in the house, walking beside Molly in an Eaton suit, my son, me in his eyes. Strange feeling it would be. I could have helped him on in life. I could make him independent. But he's jolted from his thoughts when an occupant of the carriage, Martin Cunningham, catches a glimpse of none other than Blazes Boylan, 
standing outside the Red Bank restaurant on Delir Street. And all of those in the funeral carriage, except for Mr Bloom, that is, wave over to him. From the door of the Red Bank, the white disc of a straw hat flashed reply. Mr Bloom feels awkward and looks away. Mr Bloom reviewed the nails of his left hand, then those of his right hand. He clasped his hands between his knees and, satisfied, sent his vacant glance over their faces. At Glasnevin Cemetery, the receiving priest carries out the funeral ritual over the coffin in the little chapel. Father Coffey. I knew his name was like a coffin. Bully about the muzzle he looks. Bosses the show. Domine nomine, non interes in judicium cum sovro tue, Domine. Makes them feel more important to be prayed over in Latin. Domine nomine, non interes in judicium cum sovro tue, Domine. Black-edged notepaper, requiem mass, your name on the altar list. Want to feed well, sitting in there all the morning in the gloom, kicking his heels, waiting for the next. Please. In paradisum. Said he was going to paradise, or is in paradise. Says that over everybody. Tiresome kind of job. But he has to say something. Mr. Bloom notices that the priest is rather plump. What swells him up that way? Molly gets swelled after cabbage. Air of the place, maybe. Looks full up of bad gas. Must be an infernal lot of bad gas around the place. Who is telling me? Down in the vaults of St. Warburg's, they have to bore a hole in the coffin sometimes to let out the bad gas and burn it. Out it rushes, blue. One whiff of that near a goner. The priest took a stick with a knob at the end of it out of the bucket and shook it over the coffin. Then he walked to the other end and shook it again. Then he came back and put it back in the bucket. Holy water that was, I expect. Shaking sleep out of it. He must be fed up with that job. Shaking that thing over all the corpses they trot up. Every mortal day, a fresh batch. Paddy Dignam is eventually laid to rest. As the little group slowly moves away from the graveside, two of the mourners, John Henry Menton and Ned Lambert, start chatting about Mr Bloom. Who's that chap with uh... Tom Kiernan. Bloom. Madam Marion Tweedy that was a, is, I mean, the soprano. Oh, she's his wife. Oh, I haven't seen her for some time. She was a fine-looking woman. I danced with her, wait, 15, 17 golden years ago. And a good armful she was then. What does he do? Wasn't he in the stationary line? Yeah, yeah he was. A traveller for blotting paper. <laughs> What did she marry a coon like that for? She had plenty of game in her then. Has still. He does some canvassing for ads. You can see that, well, they don't think an awful lot of Mr Bloom. Anyway, it's time for him to leave the cemetery. Mr Bloom walked unheeded along his grove by saddened angels, crosses, broken pillars, family vaults, stone hopes praying with upcast eyes. Old Ireland's hearts and hands. 
And as he's strolling along, something catches his eye. Wait. Stop. Some animal. Wait. <laughs> there he goes. An obese grey rat toddled along the side of the crypt, moving the pebbles. An old stager. Great-grandfather. He knows the ropes. Making his rounds. Tail gone now. One of those chaps would make short work of a fellow. Pick the bones clean, no matter who it was. Ordinary meat for them. A corpse is meat gone bad. Wonder does the news go about whenever a fresh one is let down. Underground communication. Regular square feed for them. They wouldn't care about the smell of it. Salt white crumbling mush of corpse. Smell, taste like raw white turnips. The time is approaching midday as Mr Bloom leaves Glasnevin Cemetery. A bird sat tamely perched on a poplar branch. The gates glimmered in front. Still open. Back to the world again. Enough of this place. Bring you a bit nearer every time. Let them sleep in their maggoty beds. They are not going to get me this time. It's a short while later, and we're now back with Mr. Bloom in the city centre. In the heart of the Hibernian metropolis. Well, in the offices of the Freeman's Journal and Evening Telegraph, actually. Mr. Bloom is anxious to set up an advertising campaign in the newspaper for a client of his, Mr. Keyes. And he's looking for a deal from Miles Crawford, the editor. And yes, he can get a deal but only if the advertisement is placed for a three-month period. Mr Bloom hears that Mr Keyes is actually in an auction room around the corner, so he hurries off to have a chat with him about it, and he just misses bumping into guess who? Stephen Dedalus. But Mr Bloom does catch a glimpse of Stephen from a distance. He has a good pair of boots on him today. Last time I saw him, he had his heels on view. Been walking in muck somewhere, careless chap. Miles Crawford assures Stephen that Mr Deasy's letter will be published. Back on Abbey Street, Mr Bloom, out of breath, catches up with Miles Crawford, who's now on his way to the pub for a drink. I spoke with Mr Keyes just now. He'll give you a renewal for two months, he says. After, he'll see. Will you tell him he can kiss my arse? But he practically promised he'd give you the renewal. But he wants just a little puff. What will I tell him, Mr Crawford? He can kiss my royal Irish arse. Anytime he likes. Tell him. But Mr Bloom isn't discouraged by this. So he sets off for the National Library to do some research for Mr Key's ad. As he set foot on O'Connell Bridge, a puffball of smoke plumed up from the parapet. Brewery barge with export stout. He sees Dilly Dedalus, one of Stephen's sisters, outside Dylan's auction rooms on Bachelor's Walk. Must be selling off small furniture. Good Lord. 
That poor girl's dresses and flitters. Home always breaks up when the mother goes. Fifteen children he had. Birth every year almost. Hmm. That's in their theology. Increase and multiply, did you ever hear such an idea? Eat you out of house and home. It's now about one o'clock, and as Mr. Bloom strolls around by Trinity College, he bumps into Mrs. Josie Breen, an old friend of his. And in the course of their conversation, she tells him all about a mutual acquaintance, Mina Purifoy. She was taken bad on Tuesday. She's in the Lion Inn Hospital in Hollis Street. I'm sorry to hear that. Yes, and a house full of kids at home. She's three days bad now. It's a very stiff birth, the nurse told me. Poor thing. Three days. That's terrible for her. They part company, and Mr. Bloom decides to go for lunch. Poor Mrs. Purefoy. Methodist husband. Method in his madness. His smile faded as he walked. A heavy cloud hiding the sun slowly, shadowing Trinity's surly front. Trams passed one another, ingoing, outgoing, clanging. And as he strolls along in the sunlight, he starts to think about Molly and himself in their younger days. I was happier then. The sun shines for you, he said. Twenty-eight I was. She, twenty-three, when we left Lombard Street West. Something changed. Could never like it again after Rudy. Can't bring back time. He stops to look in the window of one of those expensive shops on Grafton Street. Gleaming silks, petticoats on slim brass rails, rays of flat silk stockings. A warm human plumpness settled down on his brain. His brain yielded. Perfume of embraces all him assailed. With hungered flesh obscurely he mutely craved to adore. He goes into Davy Byrne's pub and decides to have a light snack. Moral pub. He doesn't chat. Stands a drink now and then. Cashed a cheque for me once. In Davy Byrne's he bumps into yet another acquaintance of his. Nosy Flynn. Now, Nosy Flynn has heard about Molly's forthcoming tour to Belfast and he asks Mr. Bloom all about it. And, of course, Blaze's Boylan's name comes up and Mr. Bloom again feels awkward. But he can't help noticing. Hope that dewdrop doesn't come down into his glass. <laughs> no. Snuffle it up. Cold nose he'd have kissing a woman. I'll take a glass of burgundy and... Let me see. Have you a cheese sandwich? Gorgonzola, have you? Yes, sir. Mustard, sir? Thank you. Mr. Bloom ate his strips of sandwich, fresh, clean bread with relish of disgust. Pungent mustard, the feety savour of green cheese. Sips of his wine soothed his palate. Can you give us a good one for the gold cup? I'm off that, Mr. Flynn. I never put anything on a horse. You're right there. I wouldn't do anything at all in that line. It ruined many a man the same horses. And as Nosy Flynn and Davy Byrne chat about the Ascot Gold Cup, Mr. Bloom reflects on happy moments he enjoyed in the past with Molly. Like that day on Hoth Head. Pillowed on my coat, she had her hair. 
Her eyes upon me did not turn away. Ravished over her I lay, full lips, full open, kissed her mouth. Young. Softly she gave me in my mouth the seed cake, warm and chewed. Soft, warm, sticky gum jelly lips. The sun shines for you, he said. The day we were lying among the rhododendrons on Hope Head. The day I got him to propose to me. And then the cruel passing of time. Me. And me now. Dribbling a quiet message from his bladder, he drained his glass and walked to the yard. Decent, quiet man he is. I often saw him in here and I never once saw him, you know, over the line. God almighty, couldn't make him drunk. There are some like that. He's a safe man, I'd say. He's not too bad. He's been known to put his hand down to help a fellow. Strolling Through Ulysses, written and narrated by Robert Gogan. Script editing, various voices and direction by Emer Finan. Produced, recorded and edited by Alan Meany. Music played by Danny Weir. Bloom, played by Paul Fred McCluskey. The Reader, played by Tracy Bruin. Molly, played by Zeta Monaghan-McGowan. Stephen, played by John Rogers. Various voices by Bob Kelly, Francis Finan, Orla McGovern and Connor Gogan. The programme is funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.